0: In the very first session of this study i talked about the phrase that paul uses in his opening statement in chapter one that phrase the righteousness of god which he says is revealed in the gospel you might remember that when i discussed that phrase i mentioned that paul was using this word righteousness or justice in a rather unique way the christians in ancient rome to whom he was writing would have understood that word to mean The quality of someone who gives to each what is their due. Punishment to the wicked and reward to the just. But Paul seems to mean something else. For Paul, the righteousness of God that's revealed in the gospel doesn't primarily consist in God's handing out punishment and reward, but in his setting things right. And if you think about it, that's really what Paul's been talking about from the very beginning of this book and ever since. First, he talked about how things went wrong, how the good creation that God had made was corrupted and made captive to sin and death. And then after that, he started announcing what God was doing in Jesus Christ to set things right. How in the death of Jesus, he was liberating humanity from the wrath of God and their bondage to sin. How in the resurrection of Jesus, he was bringing peace and reconciliation to the division that had existed between God and man. Or, as Paul puts it at the end of chapter 4, how Jesus was raised for our justification. And then in chapter 5, Paul talked about how our union with Jesus brings peace and hope and joy even amidst suffering. And then in chapter 6 and 7, he explains how those who have died with Christ are no longer under the dominion of sin or the condemnation of the law. And when you first read this book, it seems like Paul's just jumping from one heady theological concept to another. But in reality, it's all connected. Everything that he has been saying revolves around the righteousness of God. How God, through Jesus, is putting all things to right. That's important to keep in mind as we move into chapter 8, because in chapter 8, Paul continues his exploration of this theme of how God is putting things to rights. But now, instead of focusing on how God is doing this just through the death and resurrection of Jesus, now he turns his attention to how God is putting things to rights through the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the last session, we focused on the problem of of sin's power over human minds and wills, or what Paul calls life in the flesh. And in the last to final verse of that chapter, Paul voices the, he voices the complete helplessness of a person in this condition. When he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In the very next verse, he answers his own question. God is the one who will deliver him. He is the one who sets right the person who is in bondage to sin. And in chapter 8, Paul explains just how he does it as he moves from life in the flesh to life in the spirit. That's our topic this week, life in the spirit. There's a lot to discuss in chapter 8, and we obviously won't be able to get to all of it. But to help summarize what Paul's saying, I've divided up my discussion of this chapter into three sections, focusing on three different aspects of the life and the spirit that Paul describes, namely faith, hope, and love. Well, let's start with faith. When we think of faith, we often think of it in terms of what a person believes or what they trust. And many times we explicitly distinguish faith from what a person does. In fact, Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 4 when he talks about Abraham being justified by faith and not by works. And yet, it would be a mistake to think that what we believe and what we do are somehow unrelated, that faith is not integral to our life in the Spirit. To the contrary, as the Anglican theologian Oliver O'Donovan says, faith is nothing if not the subjective root from which a life of active love proceeds. And then after saying that, after saying that faith is the root for an active life, he explains why that's the case. Because faith, he says, faith is the awareness of the self made competent by an act of God to overcome the incompetence of guilt and self-doubt. That may seem like a rather strange way of putting things, but I think it's very closely related to what Paul is saying about life in the Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Notice, for instance, the things which Paul tells the Roman Christians that they need to believe about themselves. First, in verse 1, he says that they no longer face any condemnation. They have been entirely set free from the burden of their guilt. Second, he says, they need to consider themselves as those who have been made alive now and will be fully made alive in the future. For, as he tells them, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And then he goes even further. Not only should Christians think of themselves as free from condemnation, not only should they consider themselves to be alive in the Spirit, those who have received the gift of the Holy Spirit should think of themselves as sons, as children of the living God, as those who have been adopted, those who can now with confidence address God the same way Jesus did, as their very own father. Indeed, as he puts it in verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Why does Paul say all of this in his discussion of life in the Spirit? Well, it's because in order to live into this new life, there are certain things that we need to believe, certain things that require our faith like the fact that we're no longer constrained or defined by our own wrongdoing, that requires faith. We don't have to fear no condemnation. And the fact that we can can act with confidence as those who have been made truly alive, indeed have been made the very children of God. In order to live in the spirit, we have to have faith that those things are true We need to be aware, as Oliver O'Donovan put it, aware that we have been made competent by an act of God, that we can act without doubt or guilt, but with freedom and confidence. That's what it means to live in the Spirit. It is a life that's built on faith, but not just faith. Life in the Spirit is also a life of hope, Now, we already talked about the importance of hope in the Christian life when we were discussing Romans chapter 5, where Paul alluded to the hope of glory. You remember that phrase? Well, in this chapter, in verses 18 to 30, he he expands significantly on what he said about hope there. He gives us a much fuller description of the hope that animates the Christian life. When I was reading what Paul had to say here, I was reminded of a book by a historian named Andrew Delbanco, a book called The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. Now, in that book, Delbanco gives a brief history of what it is that Americans have hoped for over the years. W- what has been the content of their dreams? Now, he summarizes this history in three stages. Now, first, he says, in the, the early stages of American history, Back during the colonial period, up until around the Civil War, the hopes of Americans, Del Banco says, were by and large formed by the Christian story, a story that gave meaning to their suffering and death and promised a deliverance after death. But then something shifted, and Americans shifted their hope from God and from that future redemption to the nation itself and the dreams of what they could accomplish in this sacred national union to which they belonged. And then finally, sometime around the 1960s, Del Banco said that American hopes changed once again. Now, instead of lofty dreams of a grand and glorious national future, now Americans seem to have moderated their hopes. And they limited their dreams to their own personal happiness and that of their immediate family. In other words, what has happened over time is not that Americans have stopped dreaming, that they've stopped hoping, but that their dreams have steadily gotten smaller, more and more modest. Now, in and of itself, that's a a fascinating history, but it becomes even more striking when you compare it to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, because what's important for him isn't just that those who are alive in the spirit feel hope. He's not just talking about the importance of optimism. No, what's really important is what Christians hope for. What is it that they're waiting for? And as it turns out, what they're waiting for, what they're looking for, what they're longing for, isn't just their own personal happiness, or even the promise of a stronger nation and a more just and peaceful society. No, what Christians are looking forward to is nothing less than the glory they'll receive when they are revealed as children of God, when their bodies, their mortal bodies, he says, will be perfectly redeemed and will be made incorruptible. And then along with all of that, what they're hoping for is nothing less than the redemption and the transformation of the entire cosmos. That, according to Paul, that's the hope that animates the lives of those in whom the Spirit of God dwells. That's why he can say, in verse 28, that's why he can say that all things will work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's not because he thinks that everything Christians experience in this life will be good. It's not because he thinks that we won't face hardship or tragedy. No, it's because the good that he's talking about, the good toward which all things are working together for Christians, is nothing less than our future resurrection and the final restoration of this world in which we inhabit. And there's a reason that Paul has to remind the Roman Christians about this hope. There's a reason he has to describe it to them. It's because they, it's because because we have a tendency to forget. Even those of us who have been made alive by the Spirit, we have a tendency to forget the hope that's supposed to define our lives. But we have a tendency to dream much smaller dreams than this one. And we need help. We need the help of God's Spirit to rekindle rekindle our hope. I appreciate Dale Bruner's honesty in his commentary when he's talking about this passage, his honesty in speaking of his own need for this help. I confess, he says, that I do not often come in contact with this groaning, either for adoption or for the liberation of our bodies, in either the church or my own life. I must admit that this entire paragraph teaches realities that have not yet become personal for me. I look forward to help. So that's life in the Spirit. It's a life of faith and a life of hope. But finally, along with all of that, it's also a life of love. What is the relationship between the Holy Spirit and love? Also, what is the relationship between love and the Christian life? In order to understand Paul's perspective on these questions, I think it's helpful to to link together several verses from different chapters of Romans. First is Romans 5, verse 5, which says that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That was a very key verse for St. Augustine, Because in his mind, it answered the question of why, as Paul says in Romans 7, why it is that we seem to be unable to fulfill the law of God. The reason, Augustine explained, has to do with our hearts. Sure, we can do good actions, but apart from the grace of God, we can never truly do them for the right reason, because we don't love rightly. Only by the gift of the Spirit, he says, can we receive new hearts and be enabled to love. Now, that brings me to the second verse, Romans chapter 8, verse 4, where Paul says that God condemned sin in the flesh through Jesus Christ in order that, notice he says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In chapter 7, Paul described just how impossible it is for anyone to fulfill God's law on their own. But now he's saying that those who walk according to the Spirit will do just that. They'll fulfill the law. And how? How will they do that? Well, that brings me to the third verse, which is Romans 13, verse 10, where Paul says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, when you bring these three verses together, what we find is Paul saying that Christians can and do actually fulfill the law, and they do it through love, and that the reason that they love is because the love of God has been shed abroad in their hearts through the gift of the Holy Spirit. So by the Spirit, we are now enabled to love with the same love with which God loved us, But having said all of that, it would be a mistake to think that our love for God or our love for our neighbor—that that's the only love Paul has in mind when he's thinking about the Christian life in this chapter. Actually, if you look at Romans eight, although our love for God and one another is certainly a theme that in what Paul has to say, but it's not really his focus. Instead, his focus is on a different love a love that for him is the defining and the dependable foundation upon which Christians live their lives. And that, that is God's love for us. What then shall we say to these things, he asks in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? There are many trials. There are many hardships which we may face in our lives. And Paul, he gives a litany of some of those But no matter what may come our way, we can still go on. We can still live because by faith, we know who we are. Because in hope, we know what the future awaits us. But even more than that, we can endure and we can live because we know that there is one who loves us and who in his love will never let us go as Paul so wonderfully puts it in the final verses of this chapter, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Life in the flesh is bleak, but God The righteous one has come to set things right. And he's done it by making his own spirit live within us. And because of that, we can now live lives of faith and hope and love.